to see it, and you have to keep watching it. So a ball's hit to a young infielder who thinks that he has it, and uh, the coach is watching the whole scene unfold before him, and he realizes that the kid starts to look away to where they're going to throw before before they have the ball. They've taken their eye off of it, and almost invariably they miss it, And even if it didn't take a bad bounce, which it might have, and And the coach is watching, and he sees it all unfolding, and he yells out to the kid, keep your eye on the ball, because that's how you catch it. You have to see it go all the way into the glove. And the same thing is true with hitting the ball. If you want to hit the ball, you have to see it. You have to watch it all the way to the bat, the coach says. The funniest and maybe the most frustrating is the kid who, when they're very young, closes his eyes just before they swing. (laughs) You don't want the kid to hit the ball in that place. You don't want to set a bad precedent. You don't want to reinforce a bad habit. And again, with the youngest players, sometimes you'll see a coach who in practice is pitching to the kids, and, and he'll hold up the ball, and he'll tell them, watch the ball, keep your eye on the ball, you know, and all the while the kid is looking right at his coach, and he says, no, no, don't look at me, look at the ball. And so they start doing it, and their head's going up and down and back and forth as they're watching that ball, and then the coach wants to encourage them, right, and say, good job, and his eyes go straight to the coach again, and it starts all over again. So, no, 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 don't look at me. Look at the ball, and it starts all over again. And, uh, and as time goes on, they get a little bit better at it, but the coach is always reminding them. He's always saying to them, keep your eye on the ball, and if you want to hit it or catch it, you've got to see it. And you and me, all of us in here, if we want to reach our goal in life, well, you have to know what it is, and you have to keep your eye on it. Of course, in life, there are a lot of things that uh, we may want to accomplish. We may want to go to college and get a degree. We need a job. We'd like to buy a house, and all of those things are fine accomplishments, but they're only really steps on a path, and the path is leading somewhere. It's going someplace, and if you don't have a goal in mind uh, as you're he- where you're heading, when you get to the end of the path that you're on, you, you might realize that you're in a place you really don't want to be. You know, I tell my children all the time, I say to them, You are becoming the person you will be. That's true for all of us here today. You and I, we're becoming the men and women that we will be. But if we have the right goal and if we stay focused, though we may fall many times, though we may face many troubles in this life, we will arrive at the end of our path and will not be disappointed. And for most of us here, if we were asked, and if we were to think about it, we would likely say that our goal in life, ultimately, is to please God. You know, we came to the faith, those of us who have, came to the faith recognizing our need. 
We understood that we are sinners. We understand that our sin separated us from God, and it's in God whom is all good things, and without whom existence really is literally hell. We understood that we could not undo even one of our sins, and we could not, even if we tried, we could not stop sinning. We learned that we needed to be saved, to be forgiven, uh, so that we could go to heaven and be with God. But once we put our faith in Christ, once we knew that he had saved us, us. Once we knew that he had forgiven our sins and that he's going to take us to heaven at the end of our life, when we knew that and knew for sure that he would never leave us or forsake us, our focus begins to shift off of ourselves and onto him. It, it shifts back all the time, but the focus begins to shift onto him. And what we simply desire is to please our God and our Savior. And the passage that we're going to look at today reminds us of our goal and how best to get there, and it encourages us in that process. So I want to invite you to join me, if you would, please, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We're going to look at just one verse this morning, verse 2 of chapter 12. Now, as a congregation, we've been studying Hebrews. We've been making our way through it. We're not up to chapter 12 yet. We're just barely finishing chapter 8. But I felt led to this particular passage today. And uh, so that's what we're going to look at. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. And when we look here, we find something. We find that like a good coach, our author tells us where to look The beginning of verse 2, he says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the writer says. Fix them there. Glue them to him. Nail them there. Cement them in place. Whatever analogy that you can think of that would help you to understand what the writer is trying to communicate, that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. And it's not always easy to do. In fact, the context tells us that. In verse 1, the writer tells us that the Christian life is a lifelong race and that sin is always trying to entangle us and trip us up. And then in verse 3, he tells us that if we're not careful, we can grow weary and lose heart. And so victory for us lies in keeping our focus on Jesus Christ. And of course, we fail all the time, don't they? Don't we? And when we fail, what do we do? Well, we look back to him. We put our eyes back on him. That's where the victory is. That's how we run the race. That's how we keep going. That's how we keep from getting tired. That's how we get up when we fall, is we look to him. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And that's what the writer tells us here. And then after telling us that, just like a good coach tells his players to keep their eye on the ball, he says, keep your eye on Jesus. He goes on and gives us three reasons 
reasons to encourage us to do that very thing. And the first thing that he uh, tells us about, the first reason he gives us to encourage us to keep our eyes on Jesus has to do with our faith. And again, verse 2, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, our faith both comes by Jesus and is perfected by him. And the reason that that's so important, that that role that faith has in our life is so important, is that it's just simply vital. In fact, one chapter earlier, uh, the writer tells us something in, in, uh, in uh, 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 verse 6 of chapter 11. He makes this statement. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you see, if we're going to please God, the only way we can do it is with faith. And so without faith, It's simply impossible to please him. So all the good works that a person does, they amount to nothing if it's without faith. Joining a church amounts to nothing if it's without faith. Going to church every Sunday or every time the doors open without faith amounts to nothing. Getting baptized amounts to nothing if it's without faith doing good, whatever it is, without faith amounts to nothing. Now, all of us who have put our faith in Christ understand that it's faith alone that saves us, but once we're saved, then that work becomes out in us. But if it's not by faith, it amounts to nothing. And relying on things that we do, whatever they are, the good works we do, we're going to church or being baptized, whatever it is, when we rely on that, we cannot please God that way. It simply isn't what God wants. When you try to please God just by the things you do, you're, you're putting yourself in a kind of an employer-employee relationship. You're saying, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And that's not what God wants. What he wants is a family relationship. He wants us to trust him as our heavenly father. And without faith, you simply cannot please God. So Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so he's the author. And that is he instills faith in us. When we, when we look to him, what do we see? we see? We see perfection. We see goodness. We see beauty. We see wonder. We see God who loves us. Do you remember when you were a young, when you were a kid? Gee, sometimes I still think this way. Do you know, you, maybe you go to church on a Sunday morning and someone gets up and they sing, and they do just a really great job, and you think, I wish I could sing like that. And then you go home and it's football season and you turn on the television, right? And you watch the quarterback and he just, he just throws a tremendous pass and you think to yourself, gosh, I'd really like to be a quarterback. And then a little later, another guy catches one and you think, wow, I, I wish I could catch like that. I wish I could be a receiver. And then maybe the best of all, there's a tackle, right? And they just, it's just this tremendous sack of the, of the quarterback. And you think, oh, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want to be. I want to be a tackle. And then maybe later on, 
You watch a movie and there's a great sword fight and you think, gosh, I'd like to take fencing lessons. But you see, you see those things and something good and, and it inspires you. It makes you want to be like that. And so when we see Jesus, when, when we see who he is, how, how good he is, how, how pure, how loving, how wonderful, all that he is, it makes us want to be like that. He instills in us faith. And then it goes on and he perfects that faith in us. You see, the Bible says that once he's begun a good work in you, he carries it on. He he keeps on working in you all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. And so like a father who is helping his child to learn to walk, right? And that first step, oh, it's a delight. You've been there. You remember, don't you? You remember the delight you took in that step. And then every step after that's a joy. Father doesn't wait. He doesn't stop there. He, he wants to see that child like walk like a grown-up man or a woman. And that's what God does with us. Every time we take a step in faith towards him, it delights him. He's glad for it. But he continues working in us to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And so we stumble when we walk. And we look to him. And he picks us up and he helps us on our way. And sometimes in life we're not sure which way to turn. And so what do we do? We look to him. And even though we may still not know which way to turn, we know he's right there with us. He's shaping us. He's molding us. He's perfecting us. You see, we fix our eyes on him. And he instills and perfects the faith in us. And without that faith, it's impossible to please God. The second thing the writer does to encourage us um, to keep our eyes on Jesus is to tell us that we bring joy to our Lord. And the writer puts it this way in verse 2. Again, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. We, every one of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, bring joy to him. That's why he endured the cross, you understand. And I think that becomes clear when we ask the question, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he endure it? Why did he put up with it? And the text tells us it's because of the joy set before him. And you know what I think most of the time we think? We think, well, the joy set before him is he's going to get back to heaven, right? But he was in heaven to start with, and he left heaven for a reason. We think, well, he's gone back to the Father, and of course that would bring joy to him. But the Father sent him here because he had a reason for him to come. And the reason he came was for us in bringing sons and daughters, men and women and children into the kingdom was the joy that was set before Jesus Christ. And that's why he endured the cross. 
You know, a small picture, that's the length that a parent will go to to be with their child or to help them at the time of need. And our son, Bo, was uh, to be born. My mom and dad were making their way out to Illinois, uh, or they were going to come out. Usually it took them two, three, four days, whatever they felt like making the travel, you know. And then we called and said, he's coming. And they drove through the night just so they could be there with us. It's a small picture, almost silly compared to what Jesus did. To bring us into the kingdom, Jesus had to endure the cross. There was no other way. He had to die so that our sins could be forgiven. But to him, we're worth it, not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. He's love, and he loved each and every person who has ever lived enough to die in their place. Redeeming us was the joy that was set before him, and so for us he scorned the shame of the cross. That is, for the price that he could receive, the shame of that kind of death didn't matter. Going to the cross for him was a choice, and he made the choice with these words, not my will, but yours be done. And he chose the cross. And the Father chose to send him to that cross. And he did so, so that Jesus could bring many children with him. And one Sunday after church, um, I was in a McDonald's and I saw a mother. <laughs> she was wearing a dress, dive into a ball pit. <laughs> because she thought that her child was in trouble, you know. And whatever embarrassment that uh, one might normally feel in that situation, she didn't feel at all because all she could see was that child and thinking, he needs me. And that's what Jesus did for us. It didn't matter what he had to go through. Shame didn't matter. He scorned it. He endured the cross because of us. We're the joy that was set before him. And then finally, the author reminds us of something he said many times before. He tells us where Jesus is now. He is at the highest place of honor in the universe. And so we read all the way through verse 2. Now let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is exalted above all. And so Jesus did endure the cross, and he died, but he did not stay dead. He rose again from the grave, and that's what we celebrate today. That's why we're here. That's what we remember is the fact that he rose from the dead. He reigned the victory over the grave. And all over our world today, as the sun rises and travels the course of heaven, there are people that are doing just what we are doing, speaking different languages, living in different places with different cultures who are re remembering and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was 
dead, but he didn't stay dead, and now he's exalted to the highest place that there is. And he is the only person who has ever been resurrected. I don't want you to miss the significance of that. Other people in both the Old and New Testament were raised again to life, but it was just this kind of life, and all of them died again at some point. But Jesus was resurrected. He has a new kind of life. Death has no more mastery over him, and so far he's the only one who has been resurrected, but with him is the promise. For all of those of us who have put our faith in him, we will too one day be resurrected with our Savior. And he was sitting at the right hand of the Father's throne. And that indicates three things for us. First, that he's worthy. You know, you simply do not sit in the presence of royalty. Uh, you stand there or you fall prostrate. But Jesus, because he's the eternal Son of God, sat with his Father because he was worthy to sit at his right hand. And the second thing that that sitting tells us is that his saving work, the reason he came to this earth, was complete. You know, the last words that Jesus spoke from the cross of the seven last words or seven last sayings of Jesus was one word in the Greek, tetelestai, tetelestai. We translate it, it is finished. What he came to this world to do, to take the sins of the whole world from the sin of Adam all the way to the last sin on the last day that a person might commit. He took it upon himself. He paid for them. He, he took those sins in his own body on the tree. That we might die to sins and live to righteousness. That work was finished. He died in our place, he paid for our sins, he bore our punishment, and he rose again for our justification. And the third thing that he's doing, what he's doing right now, is that he is ruling this world. That's what sitting at the right hand of the Father means. Jesus is ruling now, and the day's going to come when he will return to this earth, and he's going to set up his never-ending kingdom here on this earth. He's going to banish evil, all evil, everywhere. But his reign has already begun. It's begun in my life. It's begun in the lives of countless people uh, in our world today. It's begun in the lives of people here in this room. We already hear him. We already obey imperfectly, but we strive, we try because he's our Lord and our God. And do you know what he's doing among the many other things that he's doing, what the focus of his rule is right now? Well, he's bringing people into his kingdom, and he's perfecting our faith. You see, the cross was a one-time event. The resurrection was a one-time event where our sins were paid for and Jesus was raised for our justification. And it all happened at a point in time under the rule of Pontius Pilate uh, when Caiaphas was the high priest in the land of Israel. But the effects of what Jesus Christ did that 
day has continued throughout time. It's traveled down through history. It's in our time, and it will remain throughout eternity. And every day, this whole world over, in spite of the distractions and in spite of the entanglement of sin and the lore of the world, in spite even of persecution and sufferings, people are coming to Jesus Christ. Here from one family, there from uh, another group, two, from that Bible study, three, and each one of them bringing others with them, being light, being salt in the world. The family of God spreads, and the family of God grows. And if you are here today and you haven't joined us yet, You still can. He is at work now drawing you to himself. I have God's authority, his word on it. If you don't know him, you can. (coughs) And for those of us who already know him, who've already put our faith in him, he continues his work. He, He perfects our faith. Slowly. Almost imperceptibly, it seems, we're being changed. We're growing more and more like him until that glorious day when we see him face to face. And the change, the work of his lifetime and ours will be completed. And in the meantime, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Glory and hallelujah. He is risen. risen Amen.